0: of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me tonight is Morgana. Tonight we're welcoming Steve Ward. He's a podcaster, an author, an all-around knowledgeable guy about high strangeness and weirdness of all sorts. And he was the first person to interview us when we came out as podcasters, so I am very happy to have him here. Hello, Steve. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing just fine, and it's really great to be here with you guys.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, when I asked if you wanted to come on the show, you asked what we wanted to talk about. And I said, what about High Strangeness? And you were there.
1: High Strangeness is my middle name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's not exactly, but close enough.
0: <laughs> so it's Steve H. Strangeness <laughs> Strange, Ward
1: H.S. Ward, right?
0: H.S. <laughs> Ward. Okay. Now
1: yeah, that's good. I might, I, I might copy that. Maybe I'll that. put
0: that on the on the title. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> uh, so, what is your favorite bit of high strangeness that's not Keel? We'll come around to him, but what is your favorite bit that isn't Keel?
1: I, I guess. I guess it would have to be. Uh, something jacques valet wrote um because when uh uh, you know i I started out in in the 60s uh thinking that uh kind of two-dimensional that uh these these things in the sky were were ets uh they were nuts and bolts craft had no clue about any kind of paranormal connection and uh we started hearing about john keel's book uh, uh, Operation Trojan Horse. I had read uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, and, and read a lot of his stuff, and liked Keel, but we were. It's funny because a, a buddy of mine and I that had our high school UFO club years before, and now we had kind of an informal group with actually a few professional people. I wasn't one of the professional people. We were kind of bad mouthing Keel, like, what's he think he's doing, drawing all this together? And then you know, I read it, and and came, came around. But to get to your question, I had kind of been in recovery from Trojan Horse, and then I read Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée, <laughs> and that was it. You know, I was, <laughs> I was, I was no longer. I was, uh, I was. Uh, I used to joke that I was uh, uh, a member of, of the Church of Kiel. Which, uh, which goes back to Zelia Edgar, who great, great, dis- I don't know, if she talked about her pamphlet that she made uh, about yeah. the Church Appeal. Uh, it's just, I, I, I hope she can distribute it somehow because it's just so well thought out and, and hilarious. But in, in fact, I went to the uh, uh, 1976 Mufon Symposium in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Now, Ann Arbor, people might remember, is the home of swamp gas, Ann Arbor, Dexter, Halesdale, mm-hmm. Michigan, when Dr. Jalen Hynek showed up in uh, uh in uh, march of 66 and uh it was funny i, I just I, I recently i read somewhere it might have been in in one of jacques valet's books forbidden science his great memoirs where uh you know this this wave of sightings were going on in michigan and i was i was in junior high at the time this is really cool that ufos are invading michigan and uh, i guess Heinick asked the air force he was still tied to project blue book would you like me to go and investigate no, don't worry about it. And then Gerald Ford, then Senator Gerald Ford, who later became president, was kind of perturbed because he thought that a lot of very credible people were seeing these things—police uh, officers and and just uh, very uh, uh, just, just salt of the earth people were seeing these these craft. And so <laughs> the, he was on a plane the next day to Michigan. Well, he he of course uh, during a news conference. Was suggesting that some of the sightings might be swamp gas, some of them, but of course the the news reporters figured it was all swamp gas, and uh, uh, he was still, you know, he had to uh, walk a, a, a thin line, a fine line, because uh, he was still tied to Project Blue Book, which was trying to appease and debunk a lot of these uh, sightings. But he had come around to believe that there was really something to it. So uh, I actually saw him in. Uh, uh, ten years later in Ann Arbor, and the, the talk his uh, the title of his talk was Swamp Gas Plus Ten and Counting, and it was it was just <laughs> great to see him. He had he had been turned into one of the good guys now. He was he had started the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, he had uh, these. He, you know, he went through the whole deal and explained how everything happened, and uh, uh, he also showed us some images of some of the cartoons that came out. At the time, and they'd be things like you'd see the uh, the little green men with their big powerful blasters. They have just landed. They've stopped a man on the street, and they say, "Tell it, take us to the one that called us swamp gas." So he had, <laughs> he had he had several like that. It was it was great. I actually recorded. I don't know where it is. I recorded it on cassette, and I did transfer it on uh, to CD, <clears throat> and I sent one to the guy that wrote. The book on Hynek recently, the, what was it called? The Close Encounters Man. I can't remember the author, but uh, so uh, that, was, uh, that, that was kind of what got me started. Uh, and, and then, of course, I know I'm, I'm rambling and getting off track here, but uh, it was that same year, 66, the following November was the first uh, major sighting of the Mothman before Mothman yeah. even had a name. And so right. uh, that was it. You know, I I was stuck. But uh, yeah, I think other than uh, than Keel, uh, the book that now now Valle has written. Just I, I'm going through uh, what is it? Confrontations. Now they've his, some of his books have just come out on Audible. Thank God. And I'm going through some of these again. It's been a long time since I have read them. So yeah, Valle is probably the guy that. Uh, uh, if you want to talk about High Strange, as the guy that really has a, a very clear view of, of this phenomena and is not, you know, fixed in his thinking where he can't be flexible or whatever. I have to tell you, I don't know if you guys have read uh, any of his Forbidden Science volumes, but those are his uh, memoirs. He's got four out now uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and i've read uh, all of the 70s and parts of the other ones i'm almost through the 80s and it uh, i'm so no i'm almost through the 90s because that's where he talks about the uh, his involvement with the skinwalker ranch and right. uh they're just fascinating to find out his thoughts and the and mixing with the people that he, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, you know, the, the, the personalities and you'll get his opinions of, of some of the different editors of, uh, whatever magazine. And, and some of them are great. And some of them are just petty little men, like, you know, just, just like human beings are. So it's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just fascinating to go through that stuff.
0: Yeah. The, those four books are actually my favorites of his books. Um, and, uh, I feel kind of alone in being one of the few people that's read all four of them. But now that I know that you you're reading them, I feel better. Um, yeah, I went through and took notes and did, uh, cross indexing to kind of follow sort of his little hints that he leaves as to who's involved in the, um, Invisible College and who in the government knows what pieces of information. And so yeah, I'm not really a stalker. I'm just kind mm-hmm. of stalker. And yeah. <laughs> you I'm sent the man a really anything thorough. Well, well, oh, now tell now tell everybody that. Thanks. <laughs> well,
1: I'm the guy that I, will take copious notes in the book with, with pencil. And yeah, then yeah. Uh, I, I've even done it with books. I'll look at my shelf and I think, "Did I? How far did I get in that, or did I read that?" I'll open it up. All kinds of notes in my handwriting that I don't remember writing. The, the idea was to write them down so I did remember it. So what? What can you do? But let me give you another book. If uh, if people are interested in the the UFO people, you know, in, throughout history, they they're, they're as interesting as the mysteries that we all try to mm-hmm. solve. Uh, James Mosley, he was the editor of uh, Saucer News, and Saucer News later on became a newsletter called Saucer Smear, which was hysterical and very irreverent. But Mosley, mm-hmm. James Mosley, and uh, Gray Barker, Gray Barker the uh, of West Virginia Saucerian Publications, They used to get together and get roaring drunk and create hoaxes. So they were definitely tricksters. But uh, and there's a a pretty interesting uh, hoax that they generated. We can talk about. But mostly wrote a great book in his later years called Shockingly Close to the Truth. And it is an absolute hoot. You get behind the scenes of uh, mostly he was a uh, his his mother was an heiress, I guess. And when she died, he was just filthy rich and he didn't know what to do with his life. So he was he was uh, I guess it was carousing and drinking and womanizing. And then he came across UFOs and he, he got really intrigued. He got the bug. So he decided he was going to write a book. And he took this journey out west and, and he went to all kinds of different people and interviewed them from the uh, contactees uh, to mm-hmm. the perhaps what we might call the more serious uh, types. And uh, n- that book never quite materialized, but a lot of that material came into this book. But it's just so fascinating because you get, uh, um, l- let me give you an example. Uh, George Hunt Williamson, he was the uh, allegedly one of the witnesses to George Adamski's sighting uh, uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and uh, encounter with Orthon from Venus in 51, I think, in the California desert. Well, later on, George Hunt Williamson and some other people were supposed to have been contacting the Space Brothers through ham radio and, uh, you know, through uh, radio telegraphy and actually actual voice. And he wrote a book called The Saucers Speak. And I always always had a hard time with that, that were they really getting something, some communications over the radio? Maybe. But what were they? Where were they coming from? And later on, it came out. Timothy Green Beckley brought out the fact that the ham radio guy they were working with was Lyman Streeter. Now, he was called Mr. R in the saucer speak. You never knew who this actual ham radio guy was. So James Mosley goes, he interviews Lyman Streeter. He interviews George Hunt Williamson. And the upshot of it is, it seems like they were using the radio thing as kind of a a, a device, maybe a literary device, to make it seem more credible. But it it sounded like they were actually getting messages through things like channeling, automatic writing, and even Ouija boards. So, mm-hmm. you know, but it's interesting because when you look at the channeling thing, uh, if you go back to uh, George Van Tassel, who lived under Giant Rock in, in the California desert, uh, yeah. and had those great, wouldn't you have loved to have gone to those those spacecraft conventions of his with all the contactees? Oh, Giant geez. Rock? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think the last one was in 1970. And Gray Barker wrote a book about it. He and James Mosley drove out there, and uh, it's called uh, Gray Barker at Giant Rock. And uh, it's uh, he takes some license because he he talks to people like Trevor James Constable, which he actually met years before. So he he made it seem like he met all these people in that one year, but they it was just kind of a a uh, what do they call it a a, a montage or a a literary. Right. Uh, of uh, device to make it all go, come together uh so uh okay where was i went off the cliff here where where, did I, where am i where am i going oh um, james mosley and shockingly close to the truth so uh, there's all kinds of things in there like that book where you find out about these people uh, uh like frank Stranges, who supposedly uh contacted valiant thor you know, you guys oh, know all yeah, this stuff. I see you guys 4. shaking your heads. You know, some of the people yeah. out there on Radio Land may be "What the heck are they talking about?" But uh, this stuff, uh, you know, I really encourage people to uh, to look at this past, the past history, the uh, retro UFO scene, because it's so fascinating. I think there are elements of truth in some of these. There's some things we can glean from them, but there's also, you know, a lot of hoaxing and 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 that sort of thing. But I guess, uh, Mosley and Barker had set up a table, their book table at the, at one of these spacecraft conventions in 1970. And, uh, <laughs> they drove up at night and they call, saw Frank Stranges taking the books and put him in his car. <laughs> and so they confronted him and he said, he said, oh, well, I was just, uh, you know, taking care of them. I was afraid they might get stolen. <laughs> so, you know, I, I always wondered about Frank and his, uh, his, uh, his supposed—I mean, his story about Valiant Thor and meeting him at the Pentagon has never changed. Never, never changed. He's Frank Strangers is long gone, but uh, it, it's funny the way the Valiant Thor thing just doesn't die. They people yeah. have attributed oh, yeah. stuff that wasn't, you know. I, I mean, it, it's it's very unlikely that there was a Valiant Thor, you know, from Venus. I would love to have one of the beautiful Space Brothers to be this matinee idol type guy that wants to, you know, uh, spread peace and, and brotherhood but it probably isn't true but it's uh, anyway that's another book shockingly close to the truth is uh while it's a very different tone than valet's stuff you get the uh, kind of the uh just behind the scenes of stuff you're not going to get by just reading certain books and so forth
0: yeah yeah i always thought orthon sounded like a synthetic fabric <laughs> yes i I I never, I couldn't take that seriously. I'm like, dude, that's something Dupont invented. That right. <laughs> well, that's what I love about
2: the retro UFO scene is it's so innocently goofy sometimes. Ooh.
0: Yeah, like, in kind of a sweet way. Yeah, <laughs> you know the, the they had record albums with with music.
1: Yes, uh, Howard Menger.
0: Yes, Menger. He had, you know, he had that, and that's just amazing to me, you know. And then you had, uh, you know, these these uh, semi celebrities like Princess Moon Owl, who <laughs> went on yes. the Long John Nebel show. Oh God! And said she was from, you know, where was she? Series,
1: from? one of the a- asteroids. Yes, series. series.
0: And uh, yeah, just cr- in, in in this amazing costume, and that's just. I love that. I just think that that's great. I, you know, I, are they telling the truth? Probably not the truth, but they're probably telling some part of a truth. But, and at least for many of them, it was true to them.
1: But wouldn't you, you know, there was a part of me, I will admit that wants it to be true. I want, oh, yeah. it, would, it would be great if, uh, if uh, George Adamski and, uh, and George Van Tassel, and Truman Berthurem, uh and and, and uh, who was the other guy? Uh, Alingham, Orfeo, Orfeo, Orfeo Angelusi and uh, oh, Cedric Alingham was a hoax, but uh, Cedric, rather, Cedric Alingham. Yes. He, he was the yes. guy that uh, met the Martian yes but but he was actually an astronomer that, that uh, <laughs> dressed up one of his buddies as the fake Cedric Lingham. <laughs> what a what a what a hoot that was that was one of the great things about Timothy Green Beckley who we just lost not too long ago yeah. he, he you know I would love to hear him on these shows because he had so much information and, and so and knew so many of these people he and sometimes Mosley and Alan uh, Greenfield who's still with us uh, and uh, some others would get together and they're, they're a little bit older than i was but i kind of lived vicariously through a friend of mine kevin went to the uh the the congress of scientific ufologists in 1967 that was run by james Mosley of the commodore motel in new york city and his mom took him we were we were kids in junior high you know what were we gonna do take a take a plane right and uh <laughs> And I was supposed to go, but then at the last minute, my parents decided I wasn't going to go to New York City with Kevin's mom. <laughs> Not that there was anything wrong with Kevin's mom, but there was plenty wrong with New York City, according to them. So, Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. So
1: I had, to, I had to live through, you know, listen to all the stories. He became friends with Gray Barker, and and even James Mosley had kind of a nickname for him, you know, because he would keep showing up at some of these uh Conventions, but I, I worked. I, I I lucked out because uh, Kevin worked behind the scenes, helping them with their whatever it was, and uh, so he they gave him a bunch of loot to c- bring back, and yeah, books and everything. Swag. I eventually inherited his files anyway. I was the last holdout of the guys that from the that had our high school club or whatever that, and I, I just inherited a bunch of this stuff because I was a survivor, I guess. But uh, that's where I got. A great copy, hard copy, of uh, Trevor James Constable. They live in the sky, complete oh. with dust jacket and everything. And uh, oh, and I, I loved that book. Now, a lot of people don't know who the heck Trevor was. Uh, now he was actually he wrote as Trevor James in that book mm-hmm. because he was a he was a businessman and he actually was a an actor. He was in a uh, film with uh, Richard Burton. Uh, some war film and uh, uh, Trevor was originally from New Zealand and in the film, he plays an Australian, which I, I imagine was a huge stretch, but uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and he's, he has very, very little speaking part. I mean, I actually bought the DVD to see if I could pick out who Trevor was. And uh, so he, uh, but it's, it's a fascinating book because he in there, he presents what he calls uh, infrared photography, of sky critters, animals that naturally live in our atmosphere. And these are from the Mojave Desert in the 1950s. And at the same time, he was in contact with a a being named Ashtar. He was channeling messages from Ashtar. And, and who hasn't channeled messages from Ashtar, right?
0: Ashtar so, gets around, man. Oh,
1: listen, he's got more. <laughs>
0: he is not exclusive.
1: I, I guess we can't he, call it FaceTime so much, but he, he gets around. He gets a lot of time. <laughs> yeah and yeah. uh but that's another uh, I, I know i'm segueing all the time but when you uh when you look at george hunt williamson george van tassel who channeled the space brothers underneath giant rock uh even you come up to more recent times like the the law of one books with uh mm-hmm. carla Rucart and james elkins and were channeling ra the ra like the egyptian ra yeah uh, there are a lot of similarities. They're the same names seem to show up, even though these people are genera- generationally apart and geographically apart. So it, it is interesting. And even some of the messages that come through are, are interesting, like uh, uh, the, the planet between uh, Mars and Jupiter that broke up and became the asteroid belt. Several different beings or whatever they are from different uh, sources say it was called Maldek, and, you know, have different reasons why it broke up. But they also, another theme that comes up is the the good aliens are from the Pleiades. Bad ones are from the Orion group, you know, and that's another common. So you wonder, you know, that, that kind of brings John Keel into this. He, he had these great catchphrases, the great phonograph in the sky. It's like, you know, this stuff is... Uh, it, what, what do you call it? A Single groove, single groove, single groove. Yep. It just keeps yep. repeating it itself, and, it, it's and these a people think the that record. exactly. And these people think that they're the first ones to get this message, but it's mm-hmm. been going on forever. But there's, you know, when we when we look at these patterns, that's that's the thing I'm really interested in, are patterns, connections, and parallels. And once once I read Trojan Horse, and once I uh, read more books by Kiel and Valet. I couldn't, I co- just couldn't not see it. You know, you, you start to see these patterns because they're there. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't imagine them. You don't, uh, uh, you don't make them up. So uh, <clears throat> I guess uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure which question I'm answering right now, but I'm, uh, I'm again, I'm going off the cliff again, I think.
2: You're doing <laughs> okay. great. I I agree about looking for patterns and parallels and after taking my occult class, where we we basically had a sampling of global occultism for a semester, which was awesome.
0: <laughs> it was so fun and you get college credit for it and I got nice. college credit for nice. it. this was a college class it was
2: beautiful um but one of the things that we learned about was different types of paranormal entities from around the world, and all of them have something wrong with their feet. hmm. They either, feet don't touch the ground, feet are on backwards, feet are animal feet instead of human feet, and the this is just, it pops up everywhere, and all I can think about is three-toed Sasquatch.
0: Yep, ah. three-toed Sasquatch, and the ghosts that you see, that you see all of the body, you know, the head, the body, and then they just sort of dissolve at the feet. Right. Yep. There's no feet. And that's one of the ways you can
2: tell something isn't human, is if its feet are wonky. And well, they, I, why feet? <laughs> it's been bothering do, me for weeks.
1: <laughs> well, don't they attribute that to the devil as well? If the devil's oh, yeah. representative shows up, there's always something wrong with them, whether that's their mm-hmm. feet yeah. or, or the face or whatever. Can, can I tell inferior, you a... Uh, too. A, a lady, a Robin Bellamy, who is a Mothman witness. When she was ten years old, she said they were. She was driving along with her family, and along the Ohio River, and she saw it standing there in the daylight. And uh, she, uh, the my first Mothman festival that I went to was in two thousand and six, uh, and Robin was there, and she she told this story. She she walked into her room in the Low Hotel, and she saw this guy standing there. Uh, and he was talking about his ship coming in. And he thinks, you know, he's, he's talking about something about a ship on the Ohio River. And it's probably some guy from the festival that just got turned around and, and walked into the room because they don't always lock them. And then she she's looking at him. She notices that his feet don't go all the way to the ground. So, of course, she's inching backwards to try and get her video camera. And by the time she touches it, he's gone. Well, she did some research because there are several ghosts that are supposed to be seen in the low hotel I've never seen anything there of course I haven't seen much of anything anywhere but uh, she found the guy in uh, uh, in the old records some guy looked just he found she found his, his photograph and it looked just like the apparition that she saw that night in the low hotel I can't remember his name or whatever but that that goes right along with what you're saying about how and and all you know it's it's uh, it's common if you uh, look at the, uh, a really fascinating book about, the, uh, about whales and about the, uh, the, uh, the contacts there and the, the UFO sightings there called The Dovid Enigma. Dubbed is spelled D-Y-F-E-D uh, by Randall Pugh and F.W. Holliday, who was the guy that wrote about Nessie and became, began mm-hmm. to believe that Nessie was a, something non-physical. But the, in the at Enigma, they talked about these uh, seven foot tall silver humanoids, and oh, sometimes yeah. they would be seen through. They could be they could see through them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that was yeah, there was and even they, they they would see them near these egg shaped craft. But they also saw these little guys that were about three feet tall with uh, a curved nose and slanted eyebrows. You know, in, in in connection, there were many parallels. Speaking of Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia, with folklore in the in the things that were mm-hmm. going on in Wales in the late seventies. So, uh, <clears throat> yes, that's that's uh, uh and that would, you would think that those like I used to be, who was very much uh, very into the physical aliens, nuts and bolts must wonder why is that why is there that distortion and then why like you said uh why is there this parallel between what we think of as different things apparitions ghosts aliens and and cryptids and so forth we get that same kind of pattern again where they're linked together
2: yeah and you know, I also, I blame Star Trek for this, but why does nobody who's into the physical explanation question why they're humanoid? Because there's no reason that aliens would look at all like us, ever. Like, you could. You could theoretically have aliens that would look humanoid, but I would imagine that you'd be much more likely to get, like, giants. Flat people that have really sturdy trunk legs or something because they live on a planet with super dense gravity or something. Right. Like there would be no
1: reason for them to look humanoid. Well, but some need, to, need seem to have, have need of some kind of a breathing apparatus. Others breathe their atmosphere with ease. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And look at the variety. Look at the variety of in variety. Quotes, aliens from the beginning of, uh, well, you can go all the way back, Albert Gonzalez. Has documented, you know, humanoid creatures uh, for centuries.
0: Oh yeah, I, I've I've looked at his pile of data because, of course, we're building a database for it, and yeah, it's overwhelming because he's given us not just his books, but his files that aren't in the books. Oh, so there is oh, over God. twenty thousand pieces. Of data that twenty thousand separate sightings that he's curated since like nineteen ninety three, it's pretty amazing, and uh, wow. it, it's scary. I mean, it it it's just really scary. But interestingly, I just heard from Chris, and tomorrow he's going to show me a demonstration of how you can put a query through the database to show all of the humanoid sightings in Ohio for a certain year and you can ask it to show only class B sightings, which of course, uh, Albert has put together, uh, it's A, B, C, D, E and F, I think, or that's how many he has different, uh, types of humanoids. And then there's then there's H, which I believe is the one that's he calls that one high strangeness that he just can't describe. Right. So everything else gets thrown into that one, um, and yeah, once it gets thrown into the Albert can't describe it pile,
1: it's pretty <laughs> it's, out there.
0: I guess it's like seriously out there. But uh, apparently he's got most of it working, so that you can you can throw these queries out, and then you can put it on
1: a map he must be on the verge of another book because I think his last one ended at 2015. So I'm anticipating another. I think it was Albert Rosales. 2015 or
0: 2017. He is working on another one. I know that.
1: Um, It's interesting though. If you look at, uh, there was a time when we did have this great variety of uh, humanoids, uh, classic cases that, uh, you know, Jim and Cora Lorenzen of APRO would, would report on. And then at, at one point we started getting the Grays, you know, the overwhelmed. Not not. And then you know, they took over. Well, either did, did did they take over and push the other guys out, or it seems to me that, that even though there were some sightings or experiences that could be called Grays in the old days, it seems like they really took over if when around the time if you look at when Close Encounters came out in 77 and then Whitley Strieber's yep. book in the early yep. 80s. It's almost, I don't know if it's coincidence mm-hmm. or not, but it's almost like that was sort of a shift in in consciousness maybe or, or perception where then the greys became much more prevalent. Even I, I, my contention is that Betty and Barney Hill didn't encounter greys. If you actually look at the drawings, they're much more I don't know, detailed than Gray's. It's almost like a Gray was kind of would be kind mm-hmm. of a caricature, a caricature of them, or, or a simplified version of them.
0: Yeah, kind of a cartoon.
1: Right. Yeah. So you yeah. wonder. Um, I ahead. didn't.
0: And Barney's—he had a nose. The mm. when he when he. Um, Drew his alien, he, he had a nose, a big nose, as I recall.
1: Yes. Uh, 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 John um, Boulet, yeah. in, in one of his books, uh points out now, while their experience is very similar in, in general, you get down into specifics and there were several differences. And Betty, one of them saw slits for a nose, the other one saw more of a Jimmy Durante nose. And you young kids out there, Google Jimmy Durante yeah. and you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, so there were a big old nose well you know and 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 barney was also um not completely conscious the whole time it's almost like he was i don't know if he was asleep or in kind of a stupor uh betty was a live wire she knew everything that was going on and uh but you know that and that that split seems to happen in a lot of paranormal situations where people don't see or quite experience the same thing um And then, you know, I I always wondered uh, when you, when, uh, you know, after reading Jacques Vallée, for for a while, Betty and Barney Hill was the one case where I thought in in the midst of all this high strangeness, they're aliens, right? Betty and Barney Hill, it must've been aliens. (laughs) But when you, when you look at the weird stuff that happened afterwards as chronicled by Kathleen Marden in Captured and uh, Dr. Dr. bertrand schwartz in ufo dynamics it was it's almost stranger than than the original mm-hmm. abduction but there's one thing about the abduction that made me think of the uh, like the old like an old fairy trick dusted off remember when betty sees the book and she thinks she's looking at this strange mm-hmm. book with the writing and the photographs and she's so excited because the leader said she could take it. And even if people didn't believe her story, she would know something real happened to her. And if you go back mm-hmm. into folklore, uh, there was a, a, one story of a little boy. He's playing with the, the fairies, come and they're playing with this golden ball. And of course, the time is distorted. He's, he's missing all day and it seems like an hour. But then he wants to take this golden ball with him. And no, nope, you can't have that. And there's all kinds of stories and motifs about trying to get stuff Mm -hmm. out of fairyland in the fairy tales. Well, Betty and Barney are about to leave. The leader comes, takes the book and says, I'm sorry, the others object. And she's so upset, but you just can't get things out of fairyland Mm -hmm. or across the threshold of a spaceship. So I just wondered if that is actually, you know, it's a throwback to, uh, an element of folklore that is so prevalent in so many experiences.
0: I, well, think,
2: so. I think so. I also, going back to Close Encounters, popularizing and I think it's kind of the same phenomena of the exorcist popularizing exorcism because exorcism and had, demons had largely died out as a practice in modern times and then the exorcist happened and there was this huge surge of demand yep. for exorcisms. Yep. I think it it gives a framework to the populace to understand something that's happening in their lives and helps them give it a face and a name. And so that just
0: like catches on and kind of gets a mind of its own. Right. There's that. Um, And then when you think about the shaver mystery and, you know, you think about, uh, Ray Palmer, you know, he gets this wacky story from this dude named Richard Shaver who was hearing things because he was work he was operating a drill in a factory and underneath the sound of the drill he could hear voices talking to him. And he gets this crazy story about the, the Daros, the detrimental robots that live underground and kidnap people and do hideous, heinous, sexual things to them. And they control us with rays that, mm-hmm. you know, get into our brains. And, and then the Taros, who are the sort of the good guys, mostly the good guys, but they're still manipulating people too with rays and doing things. And he gets this. And he's like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read because this is just crazy. And he edits it a little bit because I don't think that Richard Shaver was that great of a writer. Um, So, you know, Ray had been editing and writing for years. So he he packaged it nicely and he put it out as fiction. Except then he gets all of these letters from people saying, oh, I've been, you know, mind controlled by the Daros people too. And they are these hideous little squat scary. I've seen them in my bedroom and, and, you know, I was at Mount Shasta and I saw the Taros in their white robes and these things. And so he gets all of this stuff. And so he's like, well, this is great because I'm trying to sell this magazine. So I'll have this guy write some more. And in fact, I'll, I'll probably write some and, and put his name on it just because, and uh, so he creates this. It's like a, it's almost like a, a group project where everybody sort of creates this this story cooperatively out of what may have been a delusion of a man who had was diagnosed eventually with schizophrenia. But all of these people swore that they had experienced that. I think it's the same kind of thing. It's almost like it's a suggestion that grabs people that that gets their attention, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It, and it may energize honestly, that great photograph in the how sky. Underman works. Yeah, yeah sorry,
1: it you may you know, well. I'm sorry, I, t- I talked over well. you.
2: You're fine. Um, that's also on per. It's a very similar thing that happened with the creation of Slenderman, except they all did it on purpose, knowing it was fake. But that same spread happened with mimetic excess, um, and you ended up you ended up with Slenderman with two little girls who were delusional, probably right. who ended up trying to murder a third little girl. And one of them very much was schizophrenic and nobody's really sure about the other one. Um, But there's, I think humans have this natural inclination to both tell stories and fit things into boxes. And when you have high strangeness encounters or just any weird thing happens to you, you both need to tell everybody about it. Like, everybody you trust, because if you tell everybody about it, people just tell you you're crazy, but you tell the people you trust. And then if you hear a story that sounds close to something that happened to you, you're like, maybe that's what happened to me too. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it helps I think to feel like you're part of a community of people who've had weird things happen to you.
1: But I think there is, there may be some real substance to some of these things, a real physicality. Uh, and I think I think oh, there may yeah. even be uh, ETs or, or, or actual living physical beings mixed in with all this. And how how we you know in these high strangest areas where all this stuff happens in the same place, how do we sort through that? You know, um, uh, I, I can I want to uh, when you, you mentioned Shaver mystery, I can make I can make a connection back to Georgia Damsky, which is kind of interesting. Um, and this is after the the wave of the Shaver mystery. Uh, uh, it was, I think, uh, this is after uh, Palmer was kind of asked to leave Amazing Stories because they didn't, they just wanted to do science fiction, they didn't want to do shaver stuff anymore. Uh, Richard uh, Shaver and Ray Palmer were living virtually next door to each other in Wisconsin, and uh, one night they were interviewed on Long John Nebel's radio show, which I, I wish I'd been around to listen, listen to, although there was no way to record it, and it was yeah. late at night but uh so they, they they called him via something called radiophone. they didn't have the technology we do now so and you would hear this this conversation and they would take turns on the phone and you hear this this beep every so often because it's something called radiophone. so uh uh long john nebel is asking them all about uh at talking to schaefer and he's he's saying these crazy things like uh, there's there's certain uh uh, and, uh, buildings in certain cities. That if you press that uh, the, the the town button, the basement button twice, it'll go all the way down to where the Darrow were, and just just crazy stuff. But he, as an aside, oh yeah, uh, Long John Neville is is talking to Palmer, uh, who had, of course had been a publisher of Amazing Stories, and he turned Amazing Stories around long before Shaver came on board. And uh, he asked him about George Adamski, what he thought about him. Ray Palmer said that in the, I don't know, was the 40s maybe, 50s maybe, he received a manuscript from George Adamski. The manuscript was a story about Jesus coming to Earth in a rocket ship and talking to a man in the desert, which is the the perfect template for Orthon, the Venusian scout ship, and the contact Yep, and he uh, Palmer said he, he was very uh, diplomatic. He said I liked the story very much, but I, I didn't think it was suitable for the magazine and so forth. Well, then you know how Adamski wrote uh, the, his next book was called Inside the Spaceships. Well, mm-hmm. he he wrote a a fictional book some years before that called Pioneers of Space. Pioneers of Space is about uh, Earthmen uh, meeting other you know, Venusians and Martians and so forth and traveling around. And that's a little bit of a template for that second book. So you can, and, and then when you get into uh, Ray Stanford, another uh, old timer, uh, he, he and his, his uh, uh, twin brother, uh, Rex, they when they were teenagers, they were starry-eyed teenagers that wanted to meet George Adamski. <laughs> George actually showed them how he faked some of his photographs. <laughs> so, but, but on the other hand, uh even ray stanford said you know he knew one of the women that was the witness to the meeting in the desert off in the distance they she is, is sure that something like a cigar ship or something like that came overhead there were other people associated with the uh, photographers and so forth that uh swore that they saw real spacecraft going overhead so you you often get this uh this paradox where some of it is actually like garbage like injury cold right some of that is nonsense but some of it seems like there was a real experience there and mm-hmm. other people experienced injury cold who was another was sort of a contactee event that happened around the time of the mothman in the mid-60s in west virginia and ohio so that's what gets i mean it's, it's entertaining but it's so frustrating when we're, you're trying to sort sift through the, yeah. the the nonsense and what might actually be objectively real
2: yeah. Is you know daimonic reality that has
0: the other is the trickster? Oh. Yes, that's one of them. And then there's also um George Hansen's book, um The Trickster and the Paranormal.
1: Right. Um right.
0: and Daimonic Reality is by Patrick Harper.
1: Right. And they
0: both but they both have to do with the same kind of idea. Harper's is way more poetic and literary, very, very um, mythical and literary and Hansen's is very academic. Um, I would say Harper's is easier to read, um, but they're both very important books. If you right. want to study this sort of thing and yes, I'm going to put all of the books we've talked about in the show notes because I'm a nice podcaster <laughs> and I I don't want to force you to have to listen and, you know, write it down because I know you might be driving when you're listening to this <laughs> and I don't want you to wreck your car because you're trying to write down a book title.
1: I, so. I'm sure they're so fascinated by our discussion that they might be going off the road right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably.
1: <laughs> probably <laughs> <Maybe> not. not. <laughs> no.
0: Just a little bit. Just well, there's,
1: there's bit, another book um, by Gustav Davidson, um, a dictionary of angels. That, oh, uh, I do have that book. John Keel references. Was... Have you read the introduction yes. by Davidson? Yes. When he talks about, he's immersed. It's like, it's it's so classic because John Keel talks about this too. When certain people are so immersed in the UFO enigma that they're, well, this one guy he talked about was seeing alligators coming out of faucets and in his bathtub. I hope I never get that far off into the UFO scene. No, but, uh, no. But uh, he, uh uh, Davidson was uh, chronicling angels, but both the good ones and the bad ones. And it's this huge, the volume is huge, but he was so immersed in it that he started seeing apparitions. And this is this great story when he's crossing this, uh, this field he's not familiar with. And these apparitions are jumping up in front of him and he's trying to fight his way past. And he doesn't really know what he's confronting. He doesn't know if they're good or evil or or what they are, but it was as a result of him being so immersed in this, uh, in this dictionary and and doing this research that it seemed to just uh, uh, like the, like the slender man, I guess, uh, just sort of, uh, a psychic backlash or something like that.
2: Yeah. I do wonder about that. I do wonder if, if you focus very hard on any aspect of high strangeness or the paranormal, I, in my lived experience, if I think about it more and if I do more with it, more things tend to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if that's because it's a, the abyss looks back at you thing.
0: <laughs> you you notice them and they brain... notice you noticing them. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Or if like your brain is playing tricks on you almost, and you're making your own apparition psychically. Well, it doesn't you know... happen
1: to me. For the, I, I have, I've had one weird experience when I, I drove back from the TNT area and went to my motel across the river. And I was out there alone, you know, trying to be brave and see if I was macho enough. And it was night and I, I drove back and experienced a couple flashes of light like a strobe light and it may have been something completely normal I, I don't know but i foolishly didn't think about well where am i on the road i can come back tomorrow and check this out i did everything wrong but anyway i got back to my motel i opened the door the tv set turns on by itself and then flips through channels continuously and i thought my first thought was no, this doesn't happen to me. This happens to other people. I have oh. never had anything like this happen. So uh, as a paranormal investigator and an, an objective thinker, I unplugged the TV and went to bed. <laughs> 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 Fortunately, you know, it stopped you know, rotating when I pulled
0: Playing with, yeah. You know, I wonder if you went through a field of electromagn- high, high electromagnetic field um, and we charged essentially. And so your body had extra electric, electric energy in it. And you went in and it triggered the television set to turn
1: on. I, I don't know. I, I no, normally don't have a lot of energy, but, uh, the, the funny thing is the next year I'm in the room next to that room with a couple of buddies and we're talking that night, the TV set turned on by itself. And it was the same kind of old fashioned TV set so then we tried with the remote you know through walls and everything to see if maybe we could get it to work and it didn't the next day one of uh, one of the guys and i came in the room to retrieve something tv set turned on by itself fl- flipped through a couple stations and then stopped a few years later at a mothman festival the next room over which was a bigger room in a corner two of our friends were staying there two couples they were having trouble with their tv set which it was a newer tv set the the volume would get quieter and quieter they keep cranking it up and then all of a sudden it would blast and they have to turn it down again and then at one point there was something like a can of something on the uh, dresser or whatever and it flew off the dresser and hit the floor <laughs> so mm. my theory is barbara that perhaps i i brought back some kind of a spirit from the tnt area but fortunately he's still there flipping channels it didn't come home with me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty much it you know so and i've been so immersed in this for for decades but maybe it's that super spectrum thing maybe it's that thing keel talked about where certain people trigger this and i'm just not one of them you know and then so 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 margana has all the fun
2: uh, it's not it, always they,
1: fun <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. Sometimes,
2: sometimes it's fine, but sometimes you wake up and there's like two inch long, one inch high, rectangular yellow eyes like a foot away from your face.
1: Oh no! <laughs> no, that's
0: not and fun. you're
2: like, it's it's three in the morning. No, and you just pull the blanket over your head and like turn over. And I'm like, I'm not even acknowledging. <laughs> but sometimes it's really pretty. Sometimes it's really pretty. Like I. Last uh, last October, I think it was, I saw a little what looked like an illuminated soap bubble about, oh, yeah. the, about the size of a softball with sparkly lights in it roll across my floor and disappear into the wall. I have no idea. How do I do, what what slot do I fit that in? Magic snow globe. <laughs> disappears. The,
0: the, the Glenda the Good Witch slot.
2: Yeah, like it was a I mini mean, Glenda bubble or something.
1: Some of it just doesn't fit. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the Skinwalker Ranch, and I'm reading another book on it. Uh, the The Hunt for the Skinwalker is still kind of just a, f- a fascinating book by uh, Knapp and Kelleher. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you isolate certain aspects of it, you think, you know, with the UFOs and the coming out of portals or whatever, and the creatures, that perhaps it's just something uh, extra dimensional or whatever, but when you look at the whole spectrum, you get the uh, the poltergeist aspect, the trickster aspect, the disembodied mm-hmm. voices, the the bulls, the, the the displaced bulls, all of a sudden crammed in this uh, trailer. I, I mean, so yeah, so I you, you know there, it's it,
0: that book. I love that book, um, and then the, then I get mad because they the. Investigators at one point are in their trailer, and they're um, calibrating their EM meters. And the woman of the ranch, the, the wife and mother who right. lived there before they were like, you know, screw this, we're not doing this anymore, and left um, sensibly. Uh, she walked in to talk to them, and the EM meters went off. And I'm like, oh, you know, interestingly, if you look at when things tended to happen, like the bulls, they happened when it was the family alone, when the investigators weren't there. I'm not saying that the family hoaxed. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying something about the energy of that family was a little bit off. So when she walked in and it beeped, my brain goes, that's a thing that that's, that's a clue. You need to follow that up. And they were like, Oh, they're not working. So they, they, (laughs) they started, you know, fiddling with them to recalibrate them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to take base readings of her and you need to follow her around (laughs) because it may be that she had some sort of energetic connection with whatever is going on in that area and kind of helped it along. You know, I'm not saying she created it, but certainly not right. consciously because we, circuit.
1: we just don't know but how she, yeah. we interface with all this.
0: No, no, we don't. And, can, and that's part of what I'm fascinated with.
1: Can, can I tell you one of my favorite stories? It'll bring in uh, my favorite vehicle stoppage of all time. But it also deals with uh, two people in the same experience seeing it differently. Now, we know we have, uh, I mean, UFOs, close encounters with UFOs have stopped vehicles. We have stories of, uh, of phantom armies. There's, there's one in 1960 that they, Dorothy Strong's in a taxi cab in North, North Cumberland, and it stops the cab. But then when mm-hmm. it dissipates, everything's fine. Uh, We have Bigfoot encounters with the Mm -hmm. the classic one, uh, Doc Priestley in uh, the 60s in near Marlington, West Virginia. Stan Gordon documented some in Pennsylvania in 73, 74. But my favorite all time, and I don't know if it's true or not, uh, Elliot O'Donnell was a paranormal investigator, essentially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, wrote several books. In Ghostland, he talks about his uncle. uh, He calls him uh, Mr. B., and his uncle was married to his uh, his aunt. He, he names his aunt uh, uh, Meta O'Donnell. <laughs> Meta, not exactly that a name you name your kids these days. But uh, he's in a, uh, a cart uh, with one horse, and he's being driven by his servant named Dunkley. Doesn't get any better than that. They're on a haunted <laughs> road. Going toward Limerick in Ireland. It's got to be true if his name's Dunkley, right? Yeah, so, I think so. I think so. So they're going along. It's almost a full moon, clear night. Uh, Mr. B is just kind of, you know, he's looking back. He's just really enjoying the ride. And all of a sudden, the cart stops dead. He turns around. He sees the horse is stopped and is shivering. Dunkley has got a look of, of, of just terror on his face, and he's in a stupor. He can't seem to move. So Mr. B And Mr. B looks down and he sees these little translucent shadowy forms swarming around the horse and the cart. And so he turns around, grabs the reins, breaks the spell, and they take off. Finally, Dunkley comes out of it. And he he says, what happened? What did you see? Well, in his mind's eye, he saw a troop of dancing fairies Mm -hmm. making merry. And apparently when the fairies are making merry and you spy them, they don't like it. But they looked and he, what he saw were these angry little guys. They were climbing on the cart, trying to pull him off. And this poor guy mm-hmm. is terrified. If this is true, now it's very interesting that uh, they saw. If it's a, you know, if you're going to make up a story, it's it would be very clever to have each person see something different. But they did see something very different. He just saw the shadowy forms. He saw. Uh, Dunkley saw the manifestation, perhaps, of these things. But uh, very interesting that you—it just—I just always was amused by it because it's sort of a vehicle stoppage, even though it's a horse <laughs> and not a combustion engine, you know. But there's that; there's another—it's another pattern. UFOs stop vehicles. Cryptids stop vehicles. Um, yep. What's ghosts. the connection there?
0: Yeah, ghosts will do it sometimes.
1: Yes,
2: perhaps and- because you're in transit, so you're. <laughs> Like there's no threshold to protect you. Like that—that's another folkloric thing. Is you know, with particularly vampire lore, like you have to invite a vampire in. Like so, if you're on your home ground, you can protect yourself at home because you have your threshold. Like, if you churches churches would be protective. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's because you're in transit. You're going from one place to another. Your entire existence is an liminal zone at that point
1: yeah you know i've always wanted to find an area that i could observe you know uh at maybe at a slight distance where all this stuff is happening i sort of have found one um the uh the beast of bray road right? Uh, Linda mm-hmm. Godfrey has written these great books on it. In her one of her books, uh, The uh, Monsters Among Us, she talks about a man that she uh, she uses a pseudonym, but his actual name is Lee Hample. He's perfectly comfortable. He was on my show not too long ago. And he has a farm right near Bray Road. And he's he was a mathematician for something like 40 years, a man of science. And when this weird stuff started happening on his farm I'll, I'll chronicle some of that he uh, he told he got a hold of Linda Godfrey and he told her at one time he said you know if i'd read one of your books uh, 3 months before i would have thrown it in the trash but now he's right in the midst of it and in linda he said was was really i mean it's like for linda this was a, like a laboratory of the stuff she's been writing about and mm-hmm. he we I went to, I spoke at the Beast of Bray Road conference last October and that night we went to Lee Hample's property and he, he does, uh, uh, bails hay there. He, he sells and, and deals with hay and he doesn't live there all the time, but he has a place he can stay there in the barn. And, uh, his actual home is in Illinois. So he started noticing, you know, he, he had thrown down some roadkill or, or, or something like that, a, a raccoon or something and then he found it. It was sliced open like a razor, and the entrails are hanging out. And he thought, "What the heck?" And this, he uh, so he starts to put up cameras, and he puts out roadkill and, and carcasses and everything. And it's never capturing what takes them. I'm, I'm really shortening this, but he. Uh, I remember Linda talking about this, this this farm years before, but not telling us too much. But these strange mists would show up and you mm. see you could see he showed us like hundreds of photographs for like two hours he's but he's got thousands over the last 10 years of bizarre images uh, some of them are you see the time stamp you see the carcass you see the mist and at some point later the carcass is gone no footprints no drag mark um there are strange. You see strange-looking craft and mechanical things in the sky and toward the ground. He has a couple pictures of what might be the Dog Man way off in the distance. He has a thing on his camera that tells you how tall this thing was at a distance. It was six feet. The Bucks County people, they from from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, went out there and they they did an investigation that one night. It's on uh, YouTube. Uh, if you go to Bucks County and it's called Dogman. Uh, I forget what it, you, you can easily find it if you, if you type in dog, man, but they, they're out there. They, they, they saw I shine at about six foot. You hear the howling back and forth. Now I'm not going to say it was definitely a dog, man, but they, they were creeped out. And, uh, uh, is Eric Dominic and Ellen. Ellen is a, uh, is from Wisconsin. So she's kind of the, the West, uh, Bucks County, uh, uh, branch, I guess. But Dominic, when he was on my, when I on my show the first time, they weren't going to say too much because they wanted to reveal it on Halloween. So they kept teasing the hell out on me, man. I kept dangling that carrot, you know, and I was going. I told them I wouldn't sleep for for, for a week until I found <laughs> out. But uh, I asked Dominic, who's a sensitive, and I said, "Well, Dominic, what did you what did you feel like when when you were out there?" And he said, "I felt like I was underwater in in a, in a diving suit in a shark tank, and I was holding the bait." He was really, I mean, because the next week they went out to the Pine Barrens looking for Bigfoot. And they were with a couple of seasoned Bigfooters that had seen it out there. They seemed to get some howls out there. But Dominic made, made the remark on that video. He said, you know, I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere, in the dark, in the Pine Barrens. And he didn't have any anywhere near the feeling he did on Lee Hample's property at night. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I would, let me just try and describe one of the photographs. Uh, you know, we, we, he doesn't let them. You can see a few of them if you go to that video, uh, but one. You know, it's daytime, and you uh, and you see this. I don't know what it looks like. Maybe a black rope or something in the air, and it goes uh, like two humps like this. And you think, what's that? And he moves the, the your your view over, so you see this little boxy like mechanical thing with. A couple circles or wheels on it uh he's got he uh, he got one of a a ufo that looks like a, a turtle shell that you can tell by the time stamp it whips around this tree and then takes off i mean all kinds of stuff how you know and the and these dog men he's got a couple of photographs where it looks like it's got kind of the black silhouette you can kind of see the shoulder and everything going down uh but they will remove roadkill they act like animals you know john keel talked about this how perhaps these things sort of come into existence but they act like animals they will kill other animals and then they whatever they do dissipate or whatever but uh you know you have these creatures that act like animals they they go after roadkill they go after uh, uh bait that's left there and it's gone but they are somehow elude the technology of the cameras but the cameras do pick up some things and um, they didn't stay out there that long that night. You know, they were, they were all really unnerved and Ellen admitted that she was very good at truck diving. She just dove into that truck when they got the hell out of there. So Lee happel has told us other people have gone there, other groups with his permission and with the intention to stay all night. And one of the groups it was 10 30, and they said, they came to him and said, because uh, he's got this little room he can sleep in in, in the barn, you know, we're, we're going to leave now. We were, we were told to go. And he said, what do you mean you're told to go? I own the property. You know, you can stay all night. He said, no, we were told to go. And I found out from Donna Fink, who ran the, the uh, Bray Road conference, that what happened was they had some kind of a ghost box or something like that. And, and the voice yeah. came over and said that they should leave. So they thought, okay, we're gone. So I'm hoping to be, this April, they're doing the Dogman conference again, the Beast of Bray Road conference again. And I, it's possible I could be uh, one of those guys out there, you know, uh, uh, trying to be brave and seeing. I, I told Eric that if I can stay out there five minutes longer than he can, then I win. But so, <laughs> but the point is, it's one of these places where all this stuff is happening and to try and my example has has been, it's like if you had a thousand piece puzzle that showed you what's going on and you could say, okay, I kind of get it now. We've only got a dozen pieces of that puzzle and they're not next yeah. to each other. They're all over the place. So, yeah, but it's the, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, it's too bad that Linda was going to be on uh, the show with Lee. But she, uh, she was not able to do it that night, but she said she would come on again sometime. So uh, it was, was great to have Lee Hample because he, it's, so, it's very hard to uh, convey to people what the images look like. And he's, he's keeping most of them close to his vest. But they, I, I swear, it, it'd be worth it for anybody to make that conference in April because they're going to have a town meeting one day. The next day, they're going to have people will be out to Lee Hample's property again. And we had a a bit of a hayride around the area to see what it looked like at night. But the the best part was those two hours of these incredible, just amazing photographs that he has captured. He told me the the first time he'd seen this thing, it was at night. He's pulling into his driveway and he sees this thing down the road and he can see the eye shine. He can kind of see the shape of it. And this thing takes off like a bat out of hell. And then later on, he realizes he's missing an hour of time. So you've got missing time. You've got some kind of a strange cryptid, like Point Pleasant had their Mothman. Some people, some places have a a Bigfoot. Uh, And then you have all this other bizarre stuff. And maybe you guys have some idea. Is this like a Grand Central Station where all this comes together, but maybe these things aren't all aware of each other? Is it all orchestrated by the same intelligence? Uh, and and why, why are these beastly creatures there? What what are they doing there? If there's, you know, are they are they sentinels? You know, uh, are they constructs somehow? I I have no idea. But it's the most uh, intriguing, fascinating thing that I've seen in a long time.
2: I don't know why certain places. Um, I think. There's there's been so many different ideas about why places are like window areas or nexuses for weird stuff. Like it could have to do with running water, it could have to do with quartz veins, it could do have to do with electromagnetic fluctuations. It could but be a magical reason. But,
1: <laughs> but, but there's be, still some kind of intelligence behind it. Oh yeah, if, there if, definitely if, if the is geography and, and everything makes there's it, definitely
2: uh, something intelligent behind it because
0: the lights act intelligently. Because the damn thing being, has a
2: sense of humor is why yeah. is how I know it's intelligent is it messes with people.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. It does.
1: Well and he but he's done gone about it scientifically. He starts finding these footprints starting in the snow in the middle of nowhere. Five toes, a pad, and a heel. He's photographed them. He sent them to the DNR and other experts. One expert told him, "Oh, it's just a uh, you know a double footprint. You know how some animals will step in the, near the other footprint and look something right. weird." He said, "But it's the same footprint going on forever. Sometimes they'll start and end nowhere." It was it was funny because his brother Fred, who was very skeptical at first, he told Fred, he said, "Yeah, no, there's real. He, he when he started there farming, some of the locals said, you know." There's a there's a werewolf that lives in the woods back there, and he's thinking, yeah, right. And then he started talking to some of the credible people around there, and they were seeing this thing in the area. Fred told him originally when when he talked about how the print started in the middle of nowhere, well, he must have must have parachuted in or something. So, but but now Fred is a believer because he has. At, at first, he said he thought maybe it was a wolverine, you know, a, a, an unusual mm-hmm. animal to see in that area. But it's, there's something else going on. And uh, uh, the, actually, one woman, I don't know what her what capacity she was, when she sent the footprints, she called him a liar. Some other guy told him that he got some, uh, I don't know, stilts or something from somewhere and was walking through the snow. You know, So he has made real attempts to try and get a university or something like that. This is a laboratory where it's, 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 it's highly active. Somebody yeah. could go there and if maybe not solve it, at least document the material and, and, yeah. uh, and collate it. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I wonder if I would have the, forgive me, the stones to go out there at night, even with a group of people and stay out there. I, I, I did stay out all night in a, uh, what do they call that? A, a uh, watershed area in upstate new york where there's supposed to be paranormal activity uh near one of the some of the old stone chambers oh and yeah it was right next to this hawk rock which has a pictograph on it and uh i i i, I will confess i i nodded off a couple times i uh, I tried a couple of five hour energy transfusions, but they didn't take apparently so <laughs> I, I suspect that all the paranormal activity happened when I was snoring in my chair on top of the rock but uh <laughs> but at that least maybe when me. it would happen I, I could have had missing time and just slept through it, you know that would be
2: right. See things do happen to you. You just doze off, and then they happen to you while you're but sleeping. That's what
1: happens to me. I doze off sometimes. Sometimes during my waking moments um, as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i would I would be fascinated to try to stay out and see what happened.
1: Well, I, I, I was I, ready. I had my night vision goggles, third generation night vision goggles. I had my recorder going. Um, and I Has was,
0: anybody done uh, FLIR? Do uh, IR
1: Yeah, yeah I think. Uh,
0: to see if you're getting any heat signatures off these things?
1: I think somebody did, but I, I can't remember in association with the. Uh, but they're uh, the, the Bucks County guys are coming back with, uh, you know, a 30 gear. I, I hope to come back and bring my uh, night vision goggles. And uh, I, I've used them for. Uh, stargazing, that kind of thing. They're they're phenomenal to look at the sky if you've ever looked through them. But I've never seen, uh, I, I have seen a couple odd things in the sky, but not terribly odd, and they, they may have explanations, so.
2: That's fair. Yeah. So if you do see Dog Man, are you gonna be, you're gonna be capable of being like, all right, let's record this for science, or you're gonna be like, <laughs> it, it <laughs> be like, and I'm out.
1: Because I would
2: be like, and I'm out. See if
1: there's if there are several uh, chicks out there, guys are always want to be macho around the chicks. But if it's just a couple of dudes, they probably say, "Let's get the hell out of here." We'll just we'll tell them we stayed. <laughs> Who's going to know?
2: <laughs> I do not blame you at all. I we actually so I,
1: Well, and, and Eric, took, you know, Eric is uh, usually not unnerved by this stuff, but he got really kind of freaked out. Dominic was getting negative vibes and uh, and ellen being the lady was probably the smartest of all of them and decided we should go so uh but they, they weren't out there that long but it, you've got to listen to that video it's about a half hour and they give you okay. the uh the build up where they they're in the library and they're talking about what they're going to do eric uh, mintel does a great uh the production values are very good Uh, it almost sounds like an episode of Ghost Hunters, you know, this time on Bucks County Paranormal, but it's a serious, it's a serious video. And and they they interview uh, Lee Hample and his brother for a while in the beginning. Now, also, what I didn't know was the uh, Small Town Monsters did The Beast of Bray Road, uh, The the Bray Road Beast, and Lee Hample is at the end of that as well. I didn't know that for a long time. And you'll see a few of his photographs. So, He's, he is the, the most uh, solid, credible guy you'd ever want to know. And, and as an aside, I'm actually in Small Town Monsters' uh, The Mothman Legacy, the sequel to yes, The Mothman that. at Point Pleasant as a uh, yeah. talking head. Yeah, that was yeah they're both okay.
0: really, really good. Yeah, he, I'm so uh, sorry to
2: break in, but there was literally just a coyote howling outside my house, and I felt the need to mention that piece of synchronicity. <laughs>
1: Where do you live that you have coyotes outside your house?
0: In Athens, Ohio, in town. <laughs> yeah, okay. we have at least one one pack of them that lives in town. Sorry, they I out, just heard they that. were outside of my house last night, <laughs> and was like, we're literally talking about dogmen.
2: Thank you, coyotes.
1: <laughs> oh, I love those synchronicities when they happen to other people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, sorry, didn't mean to break in. Just oh, so that's quite all right. Synchronicity.
1: That was important. No, yeah. I
0: I understand. I realized you either saw something or heard something because I could tell by the way you popped your head up and did that. So, yeah, they were out last night on our hill. So okay. they're they're over by the river near you this tonight. Yeah.
1: Well, we're we're out. In, you know, I'm uh, east of Battle Creek, and I'm sure they're around in the air. We see deer coming through our town all the time. And uh, even even in, the, in Detroit area, some of the suburbs, uh, Farmington Hills, they were there's a uh, uh, a community where, where the houses are, and they have this kind of a uh, parkland uh, where they all it's all connected. Well, they've been out there a couple times, and where they're you know, they shouldn't be. People need to be very careful with their pets, obviously. Oh yeah, around those those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, see, Athens has woods that go all through it. And then those woods eventually connect with Wayne National Forest. Um, But there's there's state parks and national forest land and state forest land all around Athens. And then woods just kind of wander through it. And so we have all kinds of wildlife doing things.
2: I have a four-point buck that was in my front yard eating some of my grass last night. Yeah. Like 10 feet from my front door. He was magnificent. He was like, I am a stag. And I was like, dude, <laughs> you are handsome.
1: Well, in, in town here, where uh, uh, I can use the night vision goggles in the backyard or if I just watch streetlights or whatever. we were kind of away from the big city. So I'll go out in the backyard sometimes. So I was out there one time, and I heard a noise in the neighbor behind me, and I put on the night vision goggles, and there are four deer back there that I couldn't see with the naked eye just kind yeah. of passing through. So that's that's pretty cool. But it's, they're yeah. amazing to watch the uh, skywatch with. You'll see meteors and satellites that you don't see with the naked eye.
2: Oh, that would be so nice if we ever get yeah. clear nights for astronomical yeah. events
0: yeah, yeah that never happens happen in, ohio. in ohio no <laughs> it's gray winter is gray yeah yes spring's well, same, gray too yes it's <laughs> kind of like scotland here it's gray <laughs> it's kind of like scotland here except we don't have people with fascinating accents so it's not as cool <laughs> and we don't have salmon no
1: it depends we on which part of ohio that. you know and even what part of michigan you get kind of <laughs> well, north. Yeah, you get the true. Upers, and then then they, then yeah, they start to sound true. like Canadians.
0: That's yeah. True.
1: I, Sorry, I guess I Mark would... Twain wrote an wrote an essay about uh, the weather in uh, New England, and it was it was hilarious. It's one of these where you know it changes every ten seconds or, or whatever, but it's just one of his really funny essays.
0: Yeah, I can totally yeah. I I, I understand that. I wish it. Changed a little more often here in Ohio's, but, you know. Well, we're in third spring right now. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I could use a few degrees, uh, you know, when, whenever I, I take the, the journey down to Point Pleasant, uh, I can usually count on a good 10 degrees warmer, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I have to tell you, when I went to, remember Paranormal State, they did a Mothman episode. Oh, yes. When one of my yes. buddies was in it for a few seconds. Uh, John Frick Mothman whatever you know and so they had a follow-up in, in 2009 uh, the uh, uh, return to, to uh, Mothman or whatever and it was a pretty good event you know I know some of them have had some problems since then but it was uh, pretty well done and uh, but the cold air followed me down it was in the oh, 20s. No. And and Chip Coffee was there. I got to meet him. A really nice guy, and he's originally from Georgia or something like that. And that poor guy was just freezing, you know. Yeah. So that was uh, that was a good uh, a good event.
0: Yeah, I remember what Chip said about the Mothman. He was like, yes. "That's never been human. That's not well, he, human." Well, That's I went out there. Never been human. It's not no. going to be human.
1: Right. And, and also, we, uh, they, would, uh, they, they, would, they sent us out in, in a bus or whatever in groups to go out to the uh, uh, Potters Creek Road and where the igloos are, the concrete igloos. And we all got to go out with a celebrity or two, right? So I got to go out with Chip. And, uh, and so he came, he said, you know, he, he, of course, he was there for the filming of the, the TV show they did. He said, I, I pick up an energy here that I've never picked up anywhere else now of course that's very subjective but i could believe it that that there might be something very unique there so
0: yeah i i just uh recently figured out that my grandparents big farm that they had when i was was really really young up to about the age of 2 or 3 um was in mason county i did not realize that I did not realize that that's why it took so long to get to their farm. I thought that they just had a bigger farm in Putnam County and then they sold that one and went to the farm that I spent most of my time on as a kid. No, it was in Mason County. And uh, the reason I I know this is, is uh, the woman who married my mom's older brother was writing down her reminisces her reminiscence of coming to live in West Virginia. And she was originally from Rhode Island. So it was this big, uh, culture change, culture shock for her. And for a while they lived next door to grandma and grandpa and would go with them to the big farm and work there on the weekends. And, uh, You know, she was talking all about, you know, out in Mason County, they didn't have electricity at that house. They had a wooden cook stove, wood-fired cook stove. And I helped, you know, mom cook on that. And, you know, and then I started thinking about it. And I was like, that's why my mother burst into tears when we heard on the radio that the Silver Bridge collapsed. I, Because that's the first... like news item I remember because she burst into tears. We were in the kitchen and she had the radio on. She always had the radio on and, and they broke into the program and talked about that. And she just burst into tears. And I was like, for years, I didn't realize why, except I thought, well, you know, lots of people were really upset about that in West Virginia because it's a fairly small state. Lots of people know each other. No, it's because her, parents drove across that bridge all the time Mm -hmm. and you know we had driven across it i wasn't thinking you know and and then i realized all those times that we went to point pleasant and then later into pomeroy we were going to point pleasant because that's where mom lived with her parents on the weekends. And then, you know, the rest of the week they lived at nitro. And then we went to Pomeroy. Cause that's where my dad's grandfather's farm was. So I was like, Whoa, that's why she was so upset. And I, I remember my mom telling me, Oh yeah, we used to drive across the silver bridge with you. You hated it. You always cried. <laughs> wow. I was like, <laughs>
1: well, I, I used to wear, well. when, I, when I was a working man, now I'm, I'm a man of leisure, I used to wear <laughs> my Mothman t-shirts every once in a while, and i get contractors coming in saying, you know, we used to visit family down there. We drove across it two weeks before it collapsed. I mean, there's so many people that have that point of reference, mm-hmm. and I, I went down there in 2017 for the remembrance ceremony for the 50-year, uh, uh, after the 50-year of the collapse, and when 46 people lost their lives. And they did a, had a nice little ceremony right there in downtown Point Pleasant with people that I've gotten to know through the festival and so forth. And the next day, uh, a buddy of mine and I, we went down to the uh, River Museum, which has since burned down with are rebuilding. But it was, it was so incredible with all the, the models and the history of the river, the commerce and so forth. But we met a man named Bill Edmondson, and he was 88, which means he was 38 when he was crossing the bridge in his rig and he went to the bottom of the river. So he he told us his story and he was there with his family and uh, uh, and they, they were there. They were there to he was there to pay his respects to those that had died. You know, he was one of these guys that wondered, why me? Why did I survive? So he's he's hauling material in the semi from. Uh, going to a, a tire company in detroit so he's coming from the west virginia side to the ohio side
0: right. and
1: he he told us now you've probably seen the film where richard gear has all kinds of time to try and warn people off the bridge well well bill told us it was like 30 40 seconds and that was it it went down yeah. like i think a series of dominoes from the I think the Ohio side to the West Virginia side. He told us that if you can imagine the span, that all of a sudden it just started wiggling back and forth like this. It tilted so far that he's holding on to the, the steering wheel to stay in place. His, his relief driver is in the cab and never made it out. Everything gives way, hits the water, he's forced through the passenger window, and oh. now imagine this is this is December fifteenth, it's nineteen sixty seven. It's a little bit after five o'clock. Sun's almost down. Frigid temperatures. The Ohio
0: River of, is cold all the time. Oh yes, but that is terrible.
1: So he's forced through the the the, the window, and he uh, he confessed that he had had his his pants his britches were loose for comfort driving. So what happened was, it sounds comical at first, he hits the water, it goes to the bottom, and uh, the currents actually start pulling him up. But his pants are dragging behind him because of the 1960s pant cuffs. They weren't going over his shoes. Something caught his pants, debris or something, as he was going up, and it starts to pull him down again. Oh, no. Finally, he breaks loose. He comes to the surface. Frigid temperatures. His right arm is useless. Some of the material he had been hauling is floating there. There's a slit in part of it. He puts his left arm through for buoyancy. Fortunately, a uh, a, a tugboat captain saw him come to the surface, and maneuvered the uh, the tug to catch his flow downriver, and of course they they pulled him up out of the river. Probably moments before he would have died of hypothermia. Yeah. He's yeah. actually listed in one of the articles in the mothman museum jeff wamsley's done such a a fantastic job there of uh, keeping the history and the he's even got movie memorabilia and whatever but you'll see bill edmondson named as one of the guys that was pulled out of the out of the river and of course they put heat on him right away and he was there for a couple weeks and he still had a pin in his right arm and he couldn't quite still couldn't quite straighten it but uh what a, you know i i just have not ever heard a story of survival like that from a person one on one
0: that's that's amazing and horrifying you know yes. it's just just you know as i say the ohio river in the center is cold all the time yeah it it you know as soon as you're like 3 feet under it's cold it's <laughs> awful so i can only imagine what it's like in december
1: Oh, I, I just, no, I, I can't either. And, uh, you know, when I uh, made that first trip, well, I actually I went down to Point Pleasant in 1977. I had read John Keel's book and I had, I wanted to see the area. So I was visiting some friends in uh, Buffalo area and I drove in my little VW, <laughs> green VW with a red door. That's a long story. <laughs> and uh, I got down there late at night and I, I i stumbled onto the low hotel and i stayed there i had a map and I, I wish i'd taken more photographs the the ones i took of the old power plant i can't find i haven't been able to find for a long time but i with my 35 uh millimeter Minolta, i took several black and white photographs I, I found the the old north power plant which wasn't torn down until the 90s yeah. and uh i was walking there and i saw some guy coming and met me halfway he was wearing a hard hat and he says, uh, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and so, I wanted to sound cool. I didn't want to say, "I," you know, anything about the Mothman. I called it the bird, like the locals did, right? Yeah. But I, he didn't think I was cool. Uh, so I said, <laughs> "Well, <laughs> you know, I, I came down here because of the you know, Mothman. I want to take some photographs." And so he rolls his eyes and he says, "Yeah, I remember. Uh, I didn't want to." talk to anybody or interview anybody because it was only 10 years after the tragedy god forbid yeah. i talked to somebody that had been through that or lost somebody but he was yeah. he was very cool he let me let me go inside and take pictures he just wanted to make sure i didn't kill myself because it was pretty treacherous and he told us yeah that they were going to tear it down because it was so dangerous but it that was 70 77 and then it was all the way to the 90s that they finally uh did the demolition on it
0: yeah, and one just, of the times, oh, nothing there, we, right? Yeah, one of the times we went when I was a kid, it was still there, right? Um, we didn't go in it, um, but we we saw it, took pictures of it. Um, but
1: the uh, the TNT area is a creepy place in the daytime is. and at night, you know. I, I do one of the, the tours at the on Saturday night at the Mothman Festival every third weekend in September. I hope they have it this year, but I do one of the uh. I'm one of the tour guides that uh, take people through the uh the dreaded TNT area uh, cracking jokes and being a real smartass <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, we we promised Celia that if they had one next next year, that we'd come and meet her. So,
1: well, listen, you guys have got that's the only thing that costs a little bit of money, five bucks, I think. Everything else is free. So, when you get there Saturday morning, you got to go to that booth. You got to buy your tickets, and then when you get there that night, you got to wait in line for my uh, cart. There's three of them: Jeff Wamsley, mm-hmm. uh, Brittany Sayre, who was one of the was was Miss Mothman several years ago and has won many pageants. Uh, but you got to come to mine, you know. For the first time mm-hmm. next okay. year, you can go to the other guys.
2: Okay, okay. We I promise. Pr- we promise for you.
1: Okay. We promise. Good deal. We
2: might yeah. even bring cookies.
1: Yeah. I I actually, but I uh, sometimes I go there. Well, I go there ahead of time to help set up because there is a guaranteed flyover of the Mothman. But I also I have uh, taken some of the critters that used to be in my front yard for Halloween, and I'll set them up at different places and maybe light up their eyes or whatever. So you get a you know, the, the TNT area is uh, attraction enough, really. You don't need anything. But it's nice to have a little bit of, uh, uh, it, there's a couple of guys that dress up in ghillie suits. And it's toward the end of the ride when you think, we're safe now. They'll jump on the cart and scare the living daylights out of people. It's wonderful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that brings me great joy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds cool. That sounds really, really cool. Um, yeah, the, the Mothman festival, 2006, I didn't go because I was pregnant with Wolf. So that's why we didn't oh. go and didn't get to meet John Keel because
1: he was actually there in 2003. So I never had that's a chance right. to meet him. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I wish I would have had a chance to, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a segment, on uh, that was on CBS Sunday morning when, you know, Bill Geist, used to do the, the human interest or the puff piece at the end, the, the humorous oh, piece. Yeah. Well, yeah. he went, he, he was down oh. there interviewing John Keel. John Keel's wearing his white suit, which by the way, is on display in the Mothman museum in a glass cage. John's That's white amazing. suit. And, uh, and John is saying, yeah, you know, I came down here with the intention of spending a day or two. And it's been like turning, turning into a career for me. <laughs> so I just, uh, he is, uh, was such a good writer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Colin Wilson, the great uh, British uh, researcher, corresponded with Keel for a time. And that's some of that's documented in Alien Dawn. Great book. And uh, he wrote in that book that John Keel was incapable of writing a dull sentence. Which is <laughs> absolutely true. I think that's true. true.
0: I do think I, that I is mean, so true.
1: The Year <laughs> of the Guru is, the hand, is I mean, amazing. jeez, oh, yeah.
0: Jadu is, is an amazing book. And it's wonderful. I actually have a, a an old copy of it, not one of the new ones. So I,
1: I bought it in card cover with the dust jacket right there off the shelf. I was waiting for it. And I grabbed <laughs> that sucker. I still have it. The dust jacket is in shambles, but in all my original notes are, are in it ink pen, you know. But uh yeah, it was uh that was right. because he had written about the uh the Mothman, I think in Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which was uh, reprinted as the Guide to Mysterious Beings. Yeah, That's where he first, for those that don't know, that's where he first proposed the idea of window areas, which mm, yeah. he was kind of trying to come to grips with, why is all this stuff going on in the same place? Why does Bigfoot seem to pop up, scare the hell out of people, leave footprints, and then he's gone?
0: And why okay. do you see strange lights sometimes right before you see him or right after or during or, or during yep. <laughs> there's lots of lots of research from stan gordon saying oh no people see ufos and it, bigfoot at the same time
1: <laughs> i was just thinking about stan and he uh, he told me one time at the mothman festival that some of the people he has interviewed that were interviewed by other researchers the, the other researchers were either ufo guys or bigfoot guys the bigfoot guys didn't want to hear about the ufo they saw with the bigfoot and the yep. ufo guys didn't want to hear about the the hairy biped i just want to know about the aliens from alpha centauri so there's still that, that string you know what i what i would tell people that are still very much on this the that don't recognize the high strangeness aspects spend an hour or two with stan gordon and his research over the last several decades and then go to Lee Hample's and see his photographs. You'll—that's you, it. You—you you won't. You will no longer think of these cryptids as being something isolated from all the rest.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely think that that's completely reasonable. Um, I'd love to see those photographs. They sound oh, yeah. amazing. Um, Morgan well, and he'll I will release
1: should... more in, in the future. Yeah, I hope he does.
0: Morgana and I each have a couple of photographs that we've taken that we didn't really expect to come out that came out as something, but I'm not, I don't show them around to people because it's one of those things that it's just like, it's doesn't prove anything to anybody but me. Right. And what it proves to me is a, I'm seeing something that actually is a light that there is a physical light doing its thing there's actual photons doing photon things but what it also tells me is that what the camera sees is not exactly what my eyes see and that tells me that my brain is somehow involved in interpreting it or the camera isn't picking (laughs) up some other energetic component that isn't light that makes the light look different
1: well, Morgana, did you tell us that story about uh uh you were with somebody and one heard the sound of a baby crying and the other heard yes. a beeping?
0: Yes. That that is
1: right. so key. That's one of these these things that that if people listen to it will help advance, you know, we had the, the Scarberries and other people would hear the beeping noises outside their trailers. Uh people hear the baby crying and in poltergeist and hauntings and sometimes bigfoot creatures seem to let off that kind of wail. Yeah. but you're in a situation where that's a, sort of a, a small a mini rosetta stone to kind of connect yeah. these things together
2: yeah uh, i i like to think of it as my boyfriend heard the noise but i heard the signal
1: yes yeah, single the noise you said which may be but what again you know that but what does that tell us? You I know, don't know. Where's what, what it? If the signal, where's the signal coming from? And I have why no these idea. bastards making it sound like a, a baby crying? You know,
2: I because babies are something that we would want to go outside and save. So that or, is how or, it or was?
1: Attract us to it, and, and because yeah, we're, we're concerned, it might be a child that that's, needs help. That,
0: that's what I felt like when I heard a baby cry. Outside of the falling down the hill house. Um, I think it would have been 1994 or five. Um, I woke up at like three in the morning. Of course, it's three in the morning. That's when all this weird crap happens. And I heard a baby crying. We had the windows open. So through the screen, I heard a baby cry. And I got up and walked outside i didn't wake zach up because there was once he's asleep there's just no point um he's gonna stay asleep and i went out and i had a husky dog who we kept tied to the um porch and she could go down in the grass and do all kinds of stuff but if you don't contain a husky in some way they will run off And they get hit by cars all the time. So for her safety, we kept her attached to the, to the house. I don't want people to think I was a terrible person. And she hated being in the house because she liked to be outside. So she was strut. She was all the way out on her leash, as far as she could go. And she was looking up the hill to the woods and she had her ears perked. She was very alert. And so, and it kept going. And, It didn't sound like the way foxes cry that sound kind of like a baby cry. It sounded like it was on a loop. It sounded like a sound loop because it kept repeating the same. Once I woke up enough to like really pay attention, it sounded like it was the same cry over and over. There were no birds that make that noise. I, I, It was just weird. Anyway, I started walking to go up the hill, and the dog wouldn't let me go. She put herself between me and the hill, and she growled at me, which she was the sweetest animal in the world. She would never hurt anybody, but she growled at me.
1: She sensed some kind of danger, you think? Yeah,
0: I think so, and we saw eyes up there. I saw eyes shine. Um,
1: green eyes
0: (laughs) down in the grass and there wasn't enough light to actually reflect because I was like oh that's just a fox you know that explains it it's just a fox and then I was like okay first off it's too far up off of the ground to be a fox because this was uncut hay so it was like three feet tall grass and uh, wow um, there's not enough light out here to reflect Okay, yeah, Lyriel's right. I'm gonna go back in the house. <laughs> I think that's a that's what I'm gonna do. And she actually followed me into the house. And she never liked staying outside. I, I mean, she never to... liked staying inside. But she decided, no, no, I need to go inside now.
1: There's so, a book. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Babies. I'm sorry.
0: That that was just that was just my baby crying, not natural incident
1: i'm I'm trying to find the name of this uh, the full name of this book and the author it's called voices and it's it opens up with a a really creepy story and you can relate it to uh, some of the swedish uh, beliefs in folklore of the elves and so forth let me just uh, real quick here so i can it's also an audible oh come on jeez Might try and, and you know type but this thumb is just not uh <laughs> okay oh come on oh there we go just bear with me this is a. Uh... oh there we go disembodied voices true accounts of
0: that's a good book
1: oh yeah you know the book then.
0: i okay. haven't
2: read it so, this, is still, this so, yeah. is still news to me. Yeah, tell remember, her.
1: Re, remember how it opens when yes. he is playing basketball. He hears a voice he thinks might be his father. Yes. Come here, I, I need to show you something. But it's kind of like it's on a loop. And yep. the kid's unnerved about it. <clears throat> then I, I'm reading later on in one of the books on folklore that uh, the elves used to mimic the voices of their parents. To yes. capture the children, and I'm thinking, I, I don't know, I don't know what, how, how much is this real or not? But what a creepy parallel that is.
0: Yes, and when we when we had our graduation party out at that house, <clears throat> um, one of my friends heard his grandfather's voice during all of this uproar that was going on. That was crazy um, with lights and humanoid creatures and things and everything. Um, He heard his father's, his grandfather's voice. His grandfather was deceased. He heard his voice and he called him by the name that none of us knew. It was the nickname that only he called Tom. So he started going towards the woods and I grabbed him and was like, oh no, no, you're not. You're not going. And he's like, he just keeps calling my name. And I'm like, nah, it's not your grandfather. And he just, no,
1: we're
0: not having that. <laughs> You're not doing that right now. We're going to.
1: Is this Shades of Missing 411? Is that why some of these children maybe wander off? Because they hear uh, a voice like that?
2: All I could think when I read those books was fairy lore and
1: serial killers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dogs <clears> don't <throat> yeah. track. Dogs traditionally were afraid of fairies. Mm-hmm. Uh, fairies. Sudden uh, weather Bigfoot, changes,
2: high winds,
1: bold, Boulder fairy fields,
2: passage was
1: whirlwinds. Berry picking. There's a mm-hmm. story oh, yeah, berry picking in Newfoundland about it. The child that was, uh, didn't bring, you're supposed to bring bread with you or something like that mm-hmm. to, I don't know, to trade or to, to keep the fairies away. He forgot to bring it. He's gone. He's gone for three days. They find him. He comes back in a stupor. Like so many people that, that actually do survive, and, and you don't find the body, they can't convey what happened to them, whether they're yeah. adults or children. Yeah, that is so bizarre. You know, I've I, 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 I've read parts uh, in some uh, all of all his books. David Pilates has what eight books now, and yeah. something like that. But I, I will go to the local Denny's in the daylight and have a nice meal with, with surrounded by people, that's when I'll read Missing 411. You know? <laughs> so that and you know, don't get totally freaked out. They're not going to get me at Jenny's. And maybe, maybe I will not go to the laboratory <laughs> just in case. But <laughs>
0: yeah, I reached that. <laughs> that's hilarious.
2: What's interesting, she, the house she's talking about, I remember I was 345, I think, at that house. And we went there today. We went to the site. It burned down. Incidentally, years after my mom and my stepdad moved out and rented another house, it burned down in the night Um, and all that's left is the fields and the parts of the woods on the hill. And uh, we go, we do not get out of the car um, and we drive back. And as we're driving back, I got very confused and I looked at mom and I'm like, are we even going the right way? I feel like we're going the wrong way. Because I thought we needed to turn around and we were going the right way. And if we had turned around, we would have gone right back to the hill and the side of the house. And she didn't tell me until she was like, no, we're going the right way. The same thing happened when she went there with one of her friends to look at it. The same thing happened to her friends. They were like, we have to turn around. We're going the wrong way. And I'm like, no, we're not. And I was dizzy and sick to my stomach, like, I, I, and it was I can like,
1: this another... is why we have to go. In the 30s, there I, I, it was one of these stories that I kept tracing it down to its source. And uh, I don't know what it is, the Hidden Kingdom or something like that. The guy that writes it, it's about the fairies. And he writes about a young lady that was taking care of his aunt in Ireland, I guess. And so this was, you know, it wasn't uh, like third or fourth, person it was the guy who knew this young lady she went she had some time off she went to what is known as kind of a fairy hill and she's up there and then she turns around and she's coming back down and all of a sudden she's going back up again and she can't she cannot get out she keeps going down and all of a sudden she's turning back she's there for hours they're out there looking for her at night and it's dark but there's a kind of a force field, this barrier. She can't get past. She can hear them calling for her. She calls for them. There's no communication. Finally, whatever it is, the wall, the barrier evaporates, and she comes back late at night, and that's the story she told. So, you know, if you, you look at that and you think, well, that's crazy, but then you look at your experience and so many other experiences, and, <laughs> you know, I... I, I told you, I told you that I was out there at that uh, 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 watershed area, you know, being very brave and falling asleep at, at night, looking for paranormal, having, going to have a paranormal adventure. It was maybe a month later that I, I listened to David Politis on Coast to Coast AM with George Knapp, the first time he was on. I had seen the show in the list of programs, something about you know, people disappearing or whatever in parks. And I'm thinking, oh, it's one of those serial killer things again. Didn't even dawn on me. If I had listened to that show ahead of time, I never, (laughs) ever, ever would have gone there. Not maybe not even with a group of people. But uh, so, you know, sometimes when we are extremely ignorant, we can be very brave. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. More, more coyotes. Uh Uh-oh.
0: Think she has to let the dog out? Um, oh, okay. The,
1: Hopefully, it's it's that and not uh, a beast stalking her, her house.
0: No, I don't think it's a beast stalking her. No, she's she's scolding the dog. I can oh, tell. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, yeah. Today we had my younger child Wolf and his Sorry best about that. friend Jack, <laughs> and. Morgana was adamant nope they're not getting out of the car and we're never bringing them back here nope <laughs> we're driving on
2: I mean that was the house that I was t- this is the house where I learned like the rules for like things you don't do in the woods
0: <laughs> and yeah she she tried to run up to the to the hill up to the woods one time and I had told her don't go up there don't go up there and I saw her turn and start running up the path, and I stood at the end of the the uh, porch, you know, on the ground, watching her, and she hit a certain point, and she turned right around and came running back. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I told you. And she was like, yeah, it, I, I don't like it up there by myself, Mom. And I'm like, no, you don't. It's not good. Don't go up there. Yeah. Oh, that
2: was the that was the first almost me getting pixie led and then i was pixie led as a 15 year old in
1: separate woods that were somewhat connected to those woods but and and and, and, and people that don't know that it that's a, a a term that where the the fairies or whatever would uh would lure you would, would you be in a bit of a stupor or whatever they would would lure you with something to to their their kingdom or their realm or whatever but that same thing happens with so-called contactees they Mm -hmm. had this urge to get up at three in the morning and drive to this clearing and then they have what they think is an encounter with a space brother or whatever so the same same trick dusted off for modern times the great phonograph in the sky you know turning and turning
0: yep and it's the same stories over and over with just sort of different trappings i think that's that's what you see with high strangeness, you know. Right. Now we don't have werewolves; we have dogmen. <laughs> you know, we don't have. Well, we do still have pixies, but most of the time we don't have pixies. But we do have greys.
1: Yes, and, and some of the Swedish fairies had large heads and long arms. You yeah, know? and yeah. I wonder. I wonder if they had a a a grayish complexion. I don't know.
0: Well, if you look, if you look at. They Them were as, called
2: the gray people.
0: Yes, that's one of oh, the, yeah. one of the, the fairy, nicknames. the polite fairy
2: names, because you're not yeah. really supposed a, to say fairy.
1: There's a fictional story by B.B., I think there's the the pseudonym called the Little Gray Men.
0: Yeah, yeah, but you know, super pale people. Lots of fairies were supposed to be very pale, so right, you you could take that as gray. I, I had a coworker once whose skin was kind of grayish and uh, <laughs> his nickname well, was damn it, Doug. Um, Cause he was always doing something and I'd say, damn it, Doug, what did you do with that manuscript? I've got to paginate it. Did you paginate it? Oh yeah. I left it over there. And you know, he'd put the page numbers on to like, I don't know, 23. And then he'd do from 40 to something and the whole middle section was not done and I'd just be like damn it Doug
1: Well well, he had gray skin Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who was uh, kind of a paranormal investigator of his time in his book The World of Fairies I can't quote it directly but he suggests that the appearance of the fairies is partially dependent on the viewer Mm -hmm. which is like John Keel 100 years earlier
0: yeah yeah he said that that's true um I think that, well, and Greg Bishop calls that co-creation that, you know, the intelligence communicates part of it to us. And then our minds kind of fill in the blanks. We fill in the other parts. And that's why you get people who see, you know, the same phenomena, but each story is a little bit different because their perception is a little bit different. I think that that is one of the few
2: powers we have when dealing with this other intelligence is we give them their faces and their shape and that that and ritual can help protect you.
1: But awareness is important. If most people, they don't know what is going on, they accept the experience (laughs) as, as seen. But then Mm -hmm. I I think that, uh, you know, that uh, it is possible. I know Um. Oh, geez. Who was the author that wrote uh, "How to Protect Yourself Against Alien Abduction"? Andruffel. Andruffel. And it it sounds like, like like a satirical satirical book, but it's not. One of the, one of the cases she was on, the individual seemed to be able to break the abduction experience through sort of righteous indignation. So she gives you certain different. Uh, and different chapters, different. even with the djinn uh, and other entities or whatever, she gives you techniques. And I do think, I do suspect that as human beings uh, connected to that, whatever that divine is, that we do actually have dominion over our experience and our thinking, but we have to have that awareness at the same yeah. time. Yeah,
2: you have to mm-hmm. be aware and to some extent you have to be prepared, which is why I'm so glad that I had my mom because she was like, I think I was born and she was like, Well, kid, you're probably screwed. You're gonna be an experiencer. So she just like <laughs> primed me with like, you know, don't do, don't run into the woods by yourself, always turn your jacket, like all of these little things to keep yourself as safe as possible and to help frame the experiences you get, which is why most of mine have been extremely Aside from a couple, have been fairly benign, you know, amazing and interesting and cool and uncanny, but only a few times have I been genuinely frightened.
1: Right. Well, I'm a guy that almost nothing happens to, so I have to read about other people's experiences (laughs) to get a little bit freaked out for the most part. I feel
2: that. I completely yeah. understand. I yeah. also like reading about other people's experiences and scaring myself. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, I guess we yes. all like a good good, good horror story.
0: Yeah. No, there's, I mean, even John Keel himself has a, a few passages that are, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait. Like, <laughs> oh, I, I don't, I don't I, like that. I read that. the
2: Mothman prophecies at 12 and was like, okay, bedroom window, not okay with that right now at
0: night. Close those curtains. Woo. Not looking out there. (laughs) Yeah. I I had a bedroom window that looked directly into the sun porch window of the house next door. No. And that house was haunted. Oh, God. So, yeah. I used to babysit for the kids that lived over there. And they... You know, their parents were like, they're a handful to get to bed. You know, they say that there's this little girl. And I'm like, oh, OK, oh, no. <laughs> OK, <laughs> I'll, okay I'll, we're
1: going I'll, to my, uh, Howard Johnson's. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: Howard Johnson's <laughs> Until you get now. back, mom and dad. There yeah. you go. Um, And uh, the kids told me, you know, they, they were like, oh, no, we don't want to we we don't want to turn out the lights, blah, blah, blah. And I said, OK, well, we'll leave this one light on and I'll stay in here with you. And sure enough, there was the sound of, you know, footsteps running around in the hallway. And I was like, yeah, wow. that's great. That's great. And their playroom was in the sun, sun porch. But what was also in the sun porch were steps up to the attic. No.
2: Yeah. None of this is okay. Yeah. This is also just how houses happen in West Virginia. Like, I swear, we build houses in our home state, like, in such a way to maximize the level of creepy sometimes. Yeah. Like, we really do. <laughs> yeah. So, like, if there's an old well on the property, it will be in the darkest corner of the yard at yeah.
0: all times.
1: Yeah. Closest to the woods. <laughs> is, is that sort of woods? a reverse feng shui? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's opposite feng shui. West Virginia feng shui is like, it's we're going to make it as creepy is as possible. It's it is. It's feng nay <laughs> Feng nay <laughs> <laughs> Feng nope. <laughs> So, yeah, I did see a glimpse of her. And uh, but what I ended up doing is I asked the, the one of the kids, you know, which is your least favorite doll? And she said, oh, I, I don't like this one. I'm like, fine. And so I took it and I went up to the attic and I popped the hatch up and I said, this is for you to play with. Stop scaring the children, please. And I just put it in there and came back down. And, uh, for a while she was apparently quiet, but their mom like went up there and saw the doll and was like, Oh, you must, how did this get up there and brought it back down? And then she started wandering around again, but I would see her occasionally. I'd look out my bedroom window at night and occasionally her face would be at the window. And I knew it wasn't the little girl because the windows were tall. Oh, that's no, and floating heads. Not okay. Yeah. So it was the the not corporeal girl. I haven't I'm, heard this one. That's like, because I know it would scare
2: you. And I you haven't like heard it. this one. So you wait until 11 o'clock at night to tell me this.
1: Sleep <laughs> well tonight.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Ma. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm here for you. That, there you go. There's your Christmas uh, ghost story. That's <laughs> well, true. Well,
2: it, ghost stories are Christmas days, hey, So
0: thank you. Guys. I just watched...
1: Uh, to the 1938 version of uh, A Christmas Carol.
0: Who plays Scrooge in that one?
1: A Re- uh, Reginald Owen, I think.
0: Okay. I don't think I've and, seen that one.
1: And June Lockhart is in it as uncredited as one of the daughters. Bob Cratchit's oh. daughter. Long oh. before Lassie and Lost in Space.
0: Yeah. Way long before that.
1: Way long, yeah.
0: Yeah. Lost in Space. That show creeped me out
1: sometimes. Oh really?
0: Yeah, I was really ah, little.
1: Another John Keel connection. My buddies John and Tim Frick. They went to the 1903, nineteen oh three. I'm going retro. Two thousand and three <laughs> Mothman Festival. You got to keep me on track here. And uh, they they took John Keel to lunch. So they they spent you know spent a long time with him. He told them all kinds of stuff. Uh, and one of them he used to he used to write. Uh, excuse me. He used to write uh, uh, screenplays for Lost in Space, but he would do oh, it under wow. pseudonyms. They're, so they're, they're, they're Lost in Space freaks. I, I can't handle Lost in Space anymore. But one of the episodes has a werewolf in it named Keel. And I do remember one of the episodes where... I think the robot becomes giant somehow and they're inside the mechanism. There are three men, mysterious men in black with no faces that are kind of one of the episodes
0: that scared me. Yes. The men with no faces. I remember that. So that was
1: probably (laughs) Keel, even under a pseudonym.
0: (laughs) I like that. He he just snuck into your childhood. Yeah, he was. He was in there before I I even knew who he was. (laughs) That's right. Good to know.
1: Yeah, he used to write ad libs for uh, oh, one of the uh, one of the talk show guys that was on during the day. Uh, Merv Griffin, Merv yeah. Griffin, Do um, that. And he, uh, ever, of course, he. Did you ever read Jadu? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Oh, great stuff. He uh, and there are some <clears throat> you can sometimes find some of his lectures on uh, YouTube,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where he uh, he's so entertaining, and he talked about. Uh, you know, being in the armed services, armed services radio, and doing the uh, the broadcast from Frankenstein's Castle, that <laughs> was yeah. so realistic. They sent MPs up to make sure that the the radio guys weren't ripped to shreds by the monster. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a riot!
0: And the pyramid and then, at Giza.
1: Uh, yes, the pyramid. We did which, a
0: show from there,
1: and the and the tape was completely destroyed. So they yeah. had 24 hours to fix it. So they, they did it in studio just perfectly. They never had to spend all that money to travel. So they just faked it in the studio. But uh, but you get more more stuff like the, uh, remember the purple blobs, the lights you saw in the, cor- in, yeah. in the cheap cornstalk mm-hmm. area. They actually came down and surrounded him, kind of circled yeah. him, these globes or whatever they are. That's in one of his lectures. You also find out about his, in quotes, encounter with the Yeti that's t- spoken of in Jadu. He said, he, he admits that when he was there in in Tibet and he was he had heard this thing cry and, and the locals are telling him that it went this way, but when push came to shove, he can see some animal in the brush. But he said, I couldn't be sure that it was a Yeti. It could have been a bear or something. But the apparently the editor or the publisher at the time said, oh no, the imamable snowman's big these days it's a yeti so they tampered with his manuscript because he wrote originally that he didn't know what it was so he said they were he always talked about these faceless editors and while we're on that subject i'm sure you know that the the original mothman prophecies that half of it was cut out and oh yeah, and and, it became, and then became the Eighth Tower, Tower the eighth which Tower. is my
2: favorite of his books.
1: Yeah, and I Brent think Rains, I like
2: Operation Trojan Horse the most.
1: Oh yeah, that's the one. That's the one that messed me up, man. It destroyed yeah. my paradigm. <laughs> 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 and then, like I say, valet yeah. on, on the backside, and and you know that was it. Oh man, but uh, uh Brent he told well he told Brent Rains that uh, Brent Rains of course wrote that book john keel the man the myth and the mysteries and he knew he never met him but he had many phone call many phone calls with him in correspondence keel told him that if he had written everything that happened there they would easily fill six books so Mm -hmm. you you just wonder what you know what else could have been there all the stuff that happened to him
0: Yeah. yeah and and the mary hire and to oh. the Scarberries and the M- Millettes and, and, yeah, all of the people that were there. You I know. talked to
1: one of her neighbors. Uh, oh, gosh. Um, Campbell. Doty Campbell or. Uh, uh, my apologies, but she was a next door neighbor. They used to talk across the fence, you know, when they're doing hanging up their laundry. He's, she told me that Mary Hyatt told her about these strange men coming in. So this isn't something that was made up. This is something that she really experienced.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um I, I remember uh, realizing when we first visited Athens the first time, I'm like, wait a minute. Athens. What? Why is that the Athens messenger? It's the same Athens. (laughs) That's right. She was the stringer for the Athens messenger. Oh, my God. (laughs) Zach is like, what? And you're like, oh, my God, it's John Keel, though. Like, like, the Mothman Prophecies, Mary Hire, John Keel. He's like, oh, it's that weird stuff that you, okay.
1: (laughs) Remember the story about Leonard Sly, the oldster that, uh, I forget, uh, what was the name of the town? Something falls or whatever. Anyway, he uh, he was he would wander around at night, take a yeah. walk, and uh, he saw this strange building. Yeah, he, he heard the voice, and he uh, what he told told Keel, I I didn't exactly run, exactly run, but I walked pretty fast. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yep. I, I went there one time, Duncan Falls, I think. Yeah, uh, although in another article he says it calls it a different name. He's very. Uh, careful about being obscure as to where some of these places were. But I went driving through there to, around the schools to see, you know, if I could maybe figure out what school it was. He's very vague. Then I thought, you know, I don't think a middle-aged guy should be driving around <laughs> schools. And what would I what would I tell them if they stopped me? Oh, you see, I'm I'm looking for a vortex officer. You know, this is this is a scientific inquiry. I'm not a, you know, one of those guys. I'm not a creeper. <laughs> Yes, not a just like me. I'm
0: not a stalker.
1: <coughs> I just, just read obsessed. creepy books.
0: Yeah. Deeply
2: yeah. creepy books. Cool, but creepy. Oh, yes. Yes.
1: But I never very found Very cool, uh, but very vortex. creepy.
0: Oh,
1: or any sorry. strange buildings.
0: <laughs> well, You know, these things happen. It just, just usually to that you, way.
2: apparently, because you don't get to see stuff. <laughs> which sucks I'm sorry <laughs> not that it's like awesome like it, it can be
0: it can be pretty scary
2: it can be amazing scary perplexing and sometimes just it's becomes normal yeah and you're just like oh it's another shadow thing
1: no <laughs> oh, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah I
1: yeah I just don't uh, I know people that see things out of the corner of their eye and I guess it's probably happening all around me, but for my own uh, mental health, I'm just uh, completely unaware, <laughs> and I don't. And I don't need it. I'm good. I mean, I'll <laughs> read about it. I,
2: good. I good can be more objective without. The universe.
1: Yes. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I think we've been talking for over two hours.
1: So. Wow.
0: Yeah. Um, why don't you tell people where they can find your podcast? And.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, you know, it, where to find you. Oh, right. Not, not too specific, though. I don't, well, I don't no. need. Okay. but uh, You I, don't want stalkers. St- <laughs> well, it, no, I guess I don't. I guess. No,
0: you probably don't.
1: No. no. Uh, it, be careful what you wish for, right? Uh, yeah. I do the High Strangeness Factor on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. I've been doing it almost three years now, about every every other week. And you can find the Six Degrees of John Keel if you go back to the archives. We had a, a great uh, great show that one night with my co-host, Andy Mercer. And uh, I, you can find me on Facebook if you type in Steve Ward, but also type in Battle Creek. Chances are you'll find the right Steve Ward uh, there's a couple books out there, uh, "Weird Winged Wonders," where I have a chapter on the Mothman. There's other great authors in that one, uh, Brad Steiger and so forth. And uh, I, I was uh, Mark Randall did a great book called "High Strangeness," not connected to the my podcast, but it's a it's a a booklet. Uh, he's a great uh, graphic artist, and it chronicles the. The Year of the Mothman, The, the Bridge Collapse, The Men in Black, John Keel. I, I wrote four of the pieces in there. Mark wrote the rest. And of course, he did all these, these great illustrations. And you can also find me on the, uh, uh, the Mothman Legacy as one of the talking heads. Uh, it was a great interview with Seth Breedlove. He does phenomenal uh, productions. And I remember he sent me a, uh, a, a stream of it before it came out on the computer. So I'm, I don't even listen to my shows. So I'm thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to listen to me and see me. So it's funny. I was kind of hunkered down in my chair, ready to see if, when or, or if I would <laughs> pop up. And I, I, I you know I pop up a few times. I, it was okay. I mean, I, I, I got through it, but it's, it, it's such a good production. Uh, anything that uh small town Monsters done it does is pretty good. Oh yeah. And I, like Both I say, I am.
0: Man ones are great.
1: Oh, yes. Right. And, you know, finally, they did a a really good one. And uh, I am uh, allegedly writing a book that you can expect to see out sometime this decade. Some of (laughs) it is written. So it's it's not not a fantasy completely.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We've been wanting to interview you for a while and we finally got around to it. Well, it was. So it was nice
1: well, thank you. It's been so much fun and a real pleasure to talk to you, ladies. And uh, I'd love to do it again sometime, and I'll oh, have you on my welcome. show again sometime. And uh, we we must rendezvous with Zelia Edgar at the Mothman Festival. When yep. It, when it yep. Happens again. And we, we definitely pizza.
2: have to. We need to eat the Mothman pizza together.
1: Oh yeah! Oh yeah!
0: Because <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. And. The last thing is, when we go now into the Village Pizza, which used to be called Tiny's, where a famous sighting yep. of the Mothman occurred. And it's right along 30th Street where they would see UFOs and so forth. There's a table. They have tables there where they have photographs of the, of like the high school kids or whatever. They have a Mothman table. And you know me. Oh. I'm not a name dropper. But you can see my photograph standing next to Nick Redfern, among many other photographs, on that specific table. It's all nice and laminated and everything. So
0: that's definitely cool.
1: So definitely a place to visit. My pleasure.
0: Thank you very much.
1: All right. Well, have a great night. All right. We will.
0: Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.